0: As some of you know, my wife Julie and I served together on the ministry staff of a large church in Southern California for many, many years. And in practical terms, we both had good, successful jobs. We had secure employment. Then we moved into our mid-50s, and that's a point where you start thinking about, what's that last season of work life going to hold? And we thought, you know... Things are comfortable here at this church. And we can stay here until we retire. Made sense. But God had other ideas. And in 2009, out of the blue, God started putting ideas into my head that didn't make sense. I felt like God was saying, Bruce, now he doesn't use words. These are impressions, okay? But I felt like he was saying, Bruce, I want you to resign and not take another job. And just wait on me for a season. And then I'll show you what the next step is. Ah, I didn't like that. (laughs) And it made no sense, so I tried to ignore it, but it was relentless. And each time I prayed, God kept putting that thought into my head. And this went on for weeks. And so finally, I shared that with Julie. And when I said that, her eyes got really wide. And not with shock. But she said, oh my goodness, I feel like God's been saying the same exact thing to me. And that was like an oh wow moment. And so we were in agreement that God was telling us to do this, to resign without employment and wait on Him. And by the way, 2009 wasn't that long ago. Most of you probably remember your history. Remember what that year was called? The Great Recession. <laughs> We're in the midst of a huge financial downturn as a nation. And sensible people don't leave a good job when there's no other employment. And sensible people don't leave a good job when there's no other employment in the middle of a recession. (laughs) And in order to live and do what God asked, we'd have to rely exclusively on our savings. Now, Now, none of that, none of that is the kind of decisions that financial planners recommend. <laughs> yeah, we've got some financial planners in here and they're nodding and agreeing, right? We don't do that, that doesn't make sense. And so God made a plan very clear and we were reluctant to do what he asked. And as we continued to talk and pray, one day we realized that our hesitancy wasn't really about jobs and finances, ultimately it was an issue of faith. Julie and I had to decide Do we have confidence in God? And if the answer to that question is yes, then we need to believe him. We need to do what he asks, forge ahead, and trust that the outcome will be in our best interests. And so we resigned. And we gave ourselves what we wound up calling a self-financed sabbatical. And then we devoted our time to prayer, to studying and reading scripture, spending time with our small group, and saying, okay, God, what is it you want to do in us? What's next? We had no idea how long that season would last, and it lasted over a year. And God used it to draw us so much more close to him, so much more close to each other. And there was a monetary cost to that sabbatical. But the spiritual return on that investment was immeasurable. Oh, it was so worth it. Because God met us and changed us. He molded us and shaped us in new ways. And he opened us to new possibilities. He used that season to bring us to Oregon in in, in 2010. Which is something that would never have been on our radar. Never would have been on our radar without that season of sabbatical. And as I stand here with you, I think about, you know, if we hadn't come to Oregon, Julie and I wouldn't have had the privilege of becoming part of this church family. Those months of waiting on God and learning to trust Him in the face of an uncertain future that He put us into, (laughs) oh, those were some of the most difficult and yet most exciting times of our life. And I have to tell you that our emotions alternated at times between incredible fear and intense excitement. But when it all played out, here's what we learned. Our confidence in God had not been misplaced. God is worthy of our confidence. And when He prompts us to do something and when we believe what He asks us to do and we act on it, He comes through. Confidence in God. That's what the Apostle John wants to imprint on our minds and hearts today. That's what he wants us to walk away with as he wraps up this letter to the churches. And as we're going to see in these final verses of 1 John, he's going to highlight three distinct ways in which we, God's people, can live with confidence. And the first is confidence in prayer. So let's look at 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. The Apostle John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in other words, writing to Christians, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. Now prayer is something that many of us, hopefully most of us, do routinely. But if we think about it, prayer is a very strange and unusual form of communication. And to put this into perspective, let's think of our communication in human terms. And we live in an age of technology, and so we may not realize it or think about it, but for most of human history, you only could talk to a person if they physically were present. The idea of having a conversation with another human being located in a different city or a different state or a different country, that belonged to the realm of science fiction. If two ancient businessmen wanted to negotiate a deal, they had to travel and get together and talk face to face. That was the way of the world until a couple hundred years ago. And now we live in the age of the telephone. We live in the age of the internet. And we can talk with people and have video conferences with people all over the world. We can hear the voices of people who are not physically present. And we can see them. And we can converse with them. We can talk with people in other time zones and even people on the other side of the international dateline, which really can mess with your head. <laughs> if I were to pick up the phone right now and call someone in Australia, I'd be talking to someone who's living in the future because it's already tomorrow there. And they'd be speaking to somebody who's living in the past. Now, now all that's wild and weird and wonderful and amazing and it's not at all like Prayer. Because, as we all know, when we pray, we're talking to someone that we can't go visit. We're talking to someone that we cannot see face to face. We're communicating with someone who rarely, if ever, responds to us verbally. And he's definitely not in our time zone. Because he's beyond time. And that's someone that we communicate with when we pray is not a human being. He's a spiritual being. We are talking with the God who created us. And it's so easy to take prayer for granted but it's mind blowing to realize just who we are communicating with when we pray. And because our prayers are verbal and they largely go in one direction, us to God, who seldom talks back, right? Well, then it's understandable that we might wonder when we pray, does God actually hear me? And that's what the Apostle John wants to address. He wants to quell any doubts on that score, so he tells us unequivocally that God does hear us. And he says we can be confident, confident, when we approach God in prayer. And that confidence grows out of two amazing facts. First, God has promised us eternity, which is a reminder that He is eternal. He is beyond space and time. And therefore, God is not constrained by anything in this world. And as a result, God does have the ability to hear our prayers and respond to them in ways that we can understand and in ways sometimes that we never will fully understand. Because He is an eternal being. And second, our confidence in prayer grows out of God's love for us, which John has talked about repeatedly throughout this letter. A loving father listens to his children. However, when it comes to God's responses to our requests, there is one qualification. The Father does not indulge us by just giving us everything we ask for. Now we know from numerous other scriptures that God always responds to our prayers in some way. And sometimes He says yes, sometimes He says no, sometimes He says wait... Sometimes I'm praying for God to change someone else and God says, no, I need to change you. (laughs) Right? He responds in all kinds of ways. But what John wants us to understand here is that God only says yes to our prayers when they line up with his will. You see, he only gives us what's best for us. Because he sees things that we don't see. And so when we ask for things that we don't need or things that aren't good for us, then his answer is going to be a loving no. And the fact that God doesn't always indulge every request with a yes actually reveals then one of the purposes of prayer. Rather than approach prayer as a way to get things from God, prayer is most beneficial when we approach it as a way to get our hearts... And our minds lined up with God's intentions for us. And so we can pray and learn from God. So we pray and we watch and listen and see how God responds, and we learn from that. We pray and then we pay attention to the thoughts and impressions that God puts into our minds and we learn from that. We pray and then see what wisdom God brings into our lives through the people around us. Maybe God is speaking through them to give us some insights and answers. We pray and then we see how Scripture speaks into the situations that we are praying about and the more that we do these kinds of things the more our understanding will increase and the more that we will want what God wants for us and then increasingly as we grow in wisdom and faith and understanding more and more our prayers reflect God's will like the child who learns I don't go to dad and say I want candy all day They don't bother asking because they know dad will say no because candy all day isn't good for them, right? Over time we learn what not to ask because it's foolish and immature and not in line with God's will. Many years ago, Christian author George MacDonald addressed this issue and he wrote, he who seeks the Father more than any gift he can give is likely to receive what he asks for because he is not likely to ask amiss. That's kind of old-fashioned language and an old-fashioned word. But it reveals a timeless truth about how to have confidence in prayer. We have confidence in prayer not because we come to God as if he's a cosmic vending machine who dispenses stuff to us upon request. We have confidence in prayer because we know that God is our loving Father and He only has good things in store for us. And this means we can have confidence in prayer even when God says no. Because His no is better than our desired yes. We seek the Father in prayer to spend time with the Father, not to get goodies from Him, but to to let Him just lavish His love on us and mold us and shape us and we become more and more like Christ then every day. And our prayers reflect His will. Confidence in prayer. That is one of the rich, rich benefits of living each day as a child of God. And then John, John goes on to tell us, tell us that because we have confidence in prayer, then we also can have confidence over the destructive forces of sin in our lives. Let's continue on. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So first of all, John is encouraging us to pray for our brothers and sisters in the faith. And that, among other things, is a great reminder that prayer's not just for me, prayer's for us, and I have the privilege of praying for you. And John specifically says, I want you to pray for brothers and sisters when you see them struggling with sin. And one of the things that I find interesting is I've often thought, how how often when I pray For other believers, am I praying primarily for physical blessings? God please bless them with good health, good job, nice place to live, functioning car. A lot of my prayers go in those directions. Nothing wrong with that, that's good. But you know, the state of our soul is far more important than those temporary things. And as I read these words from John, it's a reminder that as I pray for you, I need to pray about the spiritual component of your life as well. Praying that God's Spirit will work in you and through you to help you grow in faith. And specifically to John's point, praying that he'd help you conquer sin. And I can pray that way whether I see sin in your life or not, right? Because we all struggle with temptation. But if we see someone falling into sinful behavior, then we absolutely should pray for them. Remember in the previous Previous passage, John said we can have confidence in prayer if we know that we're praying according to God's will. Well, we know that God wants His children to conquer sin. So if I'm praying for a believer who's struggling with sin, I know that's a prayer God wants to hear. I know that's a prayer God wants to respond to because He's concerned about us overcoming sin. Now, having said that, John gets us into the weeds a bit when he talks about sins that do not lead to death. And sins that do lead to death. And like some of the other things that John writes about, this can seem confusing at first, but with a little bit of digging, we can grasp what he means. And as always, when we find a Bible passage to be a bit challenging, we often can untangle the snarl by looking at other verses. One great thing to understand about Bible interpretation is we let Scripture help us interpret Scripture. and We're going to do that here and see what light we can gain. So to begin with let's talk about the sins that we commit. Now as followers of Jesus we'd rather not sin but we do and we would prefer to demonstrate our trust in God by by living good and godly lives. But the fact is, at times, we all fall short. And so sometimes we lose our temper, or we get greedy, or we tell some lies. Whatever it is, we mess up. And those kinds of sins are the sins that do not lead to death. This is really important. Listen carefully. It's not because of the type of sin. It's because of our connection to Jesus. Jesus died to free us from our sins which means he paid the penalty we deserve and that's why we have the promise of eternal life and that's why for believers the promise of eternal life is appealing and desirable because what awaits us on the far side of the grave is not eternal death but eternal life and here's where another scripture adds to our understanding. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it in a nutshell. And so when we are forgiven because we've repented, decided to follow Jesus, then we get that promise of eternity. Sin is taken away and the sin that we commit from that point forward is the sin that does not lead to death because we're forgiven believers. We don't face eternal judgment, eternal justice. And we can rejoice in that. However, In light of that, some believers start to get cavalier about sin. And we shouldn't. Because all sin is harmful to ourselves. It's often harmful to others. It falls short of what God expects and it harms our relationship with Him. But what John wants us to remind us of here is because of Jesus, we can conquer our sin and we can move past it. And that's why John wants us to confidently pray for each other whenever we struggle with sin. Because by God's grace, we can repent of those sins and we can learn to avoid them. We do not have to engage in repetitive sin. The power of God is there for His children. Now, what about this second category of sin that John mentions, the sin that leads to death? Well, first of all, since the sin that does not lead to death applies to the sins of believers, we might think this second category is a general indictment of unbelievers, but it's not. It's not because people who are spiritually adrift and very far from God can be rescued by Jesus. And many of us have seen that happen where the Holy Spirit's touched the heart of someone who's living a very ungodly life and lovingly drawn them in and they repent and they become a follower of Jesus. So the sin that leads to death doesn't apply universally to unbelievers. John's describing a unique kind of person, a person who is so far from God that he or she relentlessly pursues sin. These are the kind of people that, that celebrate and revel in sin and they embrace and affirm and exalt their sin and their heart toward God is so incredibly hard that they wind up with a perverse worldview, and they reach a point where they even can look at good and call it evil and evil and call it good. These are people whose worldview is so distorted that they invert and pervert truth. And once again, here's where another scripture helps bring some clarity. In the book of Mark, chapter 3. I invite you uh, to, to read that whole chapter later. There's an encounter there between Jesus and a man who is under the influence of an evil spirit. And anybody who is beleaguered by an evil spirit is in a horrible, horrible state. Their soul is ensnared by the enemy. And Jesus has compassion on that man, and he sets him free, which means then he's rescued him from the grasp of Satan. And when you set someone free from demonic influence, your mind and your heart and your soul are restored. It is a marvelous moment where God intervenes to snatch a human being out of the grasp of evil. And some, tragically some, of the Jewish religious leaders of that day, not all of them, not most of them, but some of them are so screwed up in their thinking, they've allowed themselves to be so consumed by their power and their way of looking at things, they can't abide anything Jesus is saying, and they look at what Jesus has done, and they say, oh, he's done that by the power of Satan. They accuse Jesus of being demon possessed and doing miraculous work through the power of Satan. I, I mean, this is incredible. Jesus is just on something good that's of great spiritual, emotional, and relational value, and they claim that he is empowered by and motivated by evil. And in response, Jesus basically says, You know, if you're like that, you're beyond hope. Jesus says that the thinking of those people is so distorted that they can never ever be forgiven. And those are the kinds of people John writes about when he talks about the sin that leads to death. Because for people who are entrenched in a perverted worldview they're going to find eternity to be very, very bleak. Because on what awaits them on the other side of the grave is not eternal life, but eternal death. God's justice. And that's why John says, you know, I'm not telling you to pray for those kinds of people. <laughs> I've thought long and hard about that, and I, I wonder, you know, is John actually forbidding us to pray for those kinds of people? I don't think so. I think he's just not encouraging it. I get the feeling that John thinks that those kinds of people who are so hardened, that praying for them is a waste of time. And he very well may be right. However, <laughs> however, my personal practice is I pray for everyone. And I leave the judgment And the justice up to God. Because he knows when someone is beyond hope. But I don't. And if I see people mired in sin. Hard hearts toward God. I will pray for them. If they're in my sphere of relationships. I will try and love them and share Jesus with them. And then I leave the rest in the hands of God. The sin that leads to death. We don't need to fear that because it doesn't apply to us if we're followers of Jesus. And that's the good news. That's the bottom line. That's why this is so encouraging. We are set free from the power of sin. And yes, we may sin. We probably will. But we have the ability to resist. We have the ability to conquer. And yes, we will lose some battles from time to time. But brothers and sisters, we're going to win the war (laughs) because of Jesus. And that's why John says, oh, the evil one cannot touch us. He can't get us in his grasp. The way that he does these people who are headlong rushing toward the sin that leads to death. They're in the grasp of the evil one. We're not. And so when it comes to sin, we can live with confidence Confidence about our ability to overcome it with God's help. Confidence about God's loving response to us when we do sin. Confidence that when we see each other struggling, we can pray and God will hear and respond. And as He helps me overcome sin, He'll help you overcome sin. Confidence in prayer. Confidence over the power of sin in our lives two great reasons that followers of Jesus can live with confidence. And then John writes his final thoughts and he summarizes everything he's written by reminding us that we can have confidence in God. Let's look at the last couple of verses. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So throughout this letter, John reminds us that because of our relationship with Jesus, God is our father and we're his children. And we live each day within the circle of his embrace and under his watchful care. God is a Father, we can trust. And our daily life of trusting Jesus leads us toward our eternal hope of heaven. And because of the presence of Jesus in our lives, life is not pointless, it's filled with meaning and purpose. If we trust God today and live with a confident, eternal perspective, knowing that we are in Christ and that He is with us. And then John does something rather unusual here. He just very abruptly ends this letter with this brief exhortation to avoid idols. And that comment comes across as a bit sudden and a bit jarring, and I think it's intended to be. He wants to have us go, whoa! And that's because idols permeate every culture. And idols can undermine our faith. And as modern people, we say, oh, we don't worship idols. Oh, yes, we do. (laughs) We don't necessarily go out to some little altar and worship a stone god or something. But we can worship anything and put it in the place of God. We can trust all kinds of things and put them in the place of God. And our modern idols are things like money and sex and power and status and materialism. If you don't think modern day Americans are idol worshipers, just think about the influence of sex in our culture. That is an Idol. And we should not place our trust in any such things because they all belong to this world and they do nothing to nourish our souls. And if we give them too much attention, they're going to erode our confidence in God. Avoid the worship of idols. That is a great charge to anyone who wants to live as a faithful, confident follower of Jesus. When J. Paul Getty was the richest man in the world, think about that, the richest man in the world, he once was asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? See, that's confidence in riches, that's not confidence in God. John's challenging us to say, where do we place our confidence? as God's dear little children. If we live each day with confidence in God, oh, does it make a difference. And we've got three specific ways that John has encouraged us to live out that confidence. Confidence over sin, confidence in prayer, confidence in God because we are in Christ. And when we live that way, with that kind of confidence, then we're going to find it so much easier to live together as a sticky community of faith. Because people who are confident in God are people who stick to God. And we stick to each other through all of the ups and downs of life. A sticky community lives with confidence because we trust God. During the Iraq War in the early 2000's, a soldier named Kelly Benton was in the midst of a battle in the town of Bakaba. And like all urban battles, this was one where soldiers and civilians were in close proximity. And that's never good. Kelly was in the midst of this firefight And he saw a building near him get hit by a shell and the building started to collapse. And just before the walls hit the ground, a man ran out of that building holding his young son by the hand. And the yard was filled with thick smoke and bullets were flying around and the man needed a place to hide. And he saw a shell hole and he made a beeline for that thinking that could be sanctuary Kelly and his platoon tried to give that man covering fire so he and his son could get to safety. And the man got there, and the hole was too deep for them both to jump in together. So the man jumped in first. Then he turned and he held his hands up and he said, Okay, son, jump, jump! But the son had had been reduced to terror. Because his dad wasn't holding his hand anymore and he was frightened because of the bullets flying around and the scream of the shells and the smoke. And he said, Father, I can't see you. I can't see you. I don't want to jump. And the father looked up, and he could see the silhouette of his son, and he said, I can see you, son. Jump. And the little boy jumped into the arms of his father and then they knelt down and they were protected and they survived that ugly, horrible battle. But why did that boy jump? He jumped because he had confidence in his father. And because of his confidence, here's the key point, he trusted that his father could see what he could not see. Dad, I can't see you. I can see you son, have confidence, jump into my arms. Brothers and sisters, that is a powerful picture of what our life with God can be like and should be like. And let's face it, each day, each week, there's a whole lot of fog and confusion that happens in daily life. And we're often surrounded by harmful influences and there's times when life doesn't make sense like when God says, resign your job and wait on me. (laughs) God always sees what we cannot see. And that's why we, as followers of Jesus, can live each day with confidence in God. He's worthy of it. And He will never let us down. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to learn to trust him more each day, to increase our confidence in him. And as we learn to stick more closely to you and more closely to each other, may our confidence in you grow more and more and more so that no matter what might come our way no matter what temptations and distractions we might face no matter what modern idols might pop up and momentarily catch our eye Father may we just ignore all those things and press on with you help us to be confident in prayer confident over sin and to live with confidence in you And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.